Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., made this statement. Before and after America, there was and will be the church. This nation is an experiment. The church is a certainty. And I don't know about you, but I praise God for that reality. Amen? And coming off of a week where the very heart of the gospel was actually in the spotlight, albeit unwittingly, that is, uh, that reality from Mark Dever is a good reminder for every follower of Jesus Christ in America today. Another pastor, his name is Mike, and then I can't say his last name, so Pastor Mike made this statement, God doesn't need His church to be big. He doesn't need His church to be small. He doesn't need it to be contemporary or traditional. But God demands that His church be alive, that it reflect the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. That's what we've just been singing about, is it not? The fact that we have the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead living in us, and therefore, we can step out onto the waves of life, those oceans that that don't make sense to step on. We can do stuff you shouldn't be able to do, like walk on water, in Peter's experience, and we can do all that being made brave and strong and courageous, empowered by the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead and in so doing reflect the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the world. That much he does demand of each and every local church. And that's why our study of 1 Timothy is timely in this day and age and especially important for us, I believe. We learn, we've been learning about the church at Ephesus and the mess that the young pastor Timothy is dropped off in Ephesus by Paul to deal with. John MacArthur says that wrong doctrine and wrong living were rampant in Ephesus. And so we've been looking at this book of 1 Timothy under the heading, Gospel-Shaped Living for Jesus Gospel Gathering. Why does Paul write this letter to young Timothy, because there was wrong doctrine and wrong living running rampant in Ephesus, and he writes to Timothy to say, Timothy, for for you to be a gospel-shaped gathering, you've got to have gospel-shaped living. Here's what living in the church of Jesus at Ephesus ought to look like. Here's how the gospel should, should so shape your living as individual believers and as a group together that together as Jesus gospel gathering, you will indeed reflect the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And so today we come to part five of our study. John Piper, in his excellent book entitled, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, A Plea to Pastors for Radical Ministry, has written the following. We pastors are being killed by the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry. The more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. For there is no professional childlikeness, Matthew 18, verse 3. There is no professional tenderheartedness, Ephesians 4, 32. There is no professional panting after God, Psalm 42, verse 1. Brothers, we are not 
professionals. We are outcasts. We are aliens and exiles in the world, 1 Peter 2, 11. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we wait with eager expectation for the Lord, Philippians 3, verse 20. You cannot professionalize the love for His appearing without killing it, and it is being killed. The professionalization of the ministry is a constant threat to the offense of the gospel. It is a threat to the profoundly spiritual nature of our work. Piper says, I have seen it often, the love of professionalism, parody or acceptance among the world's professionals kills a man's belief that he is sent by God to save people from hell and to make them Christ-exalting spiritual aliens in the world. And may I just suggest to you as a pastor that Piper's book is more true today than the several years ago when it was written. Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy kept all of this straight. For his own sake as the pastor of the church at Ephesus and for the sake of the gospel gathering there, the body of Christ there in Ephesus. This morning I want to talk to you as we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 about the priorities of gospel-shaped pastors. Last week, you looked at gospel-shaped leadership, right? We talked about elders and deacons, the plurality of elders and pastors that God has uh, ordained for the church alongside of a plurality of deacons who are servants to the church. Today, Paul focuses in on the the lead pastor, if you will, of the church at Ephesus. They They had several. They had several elders slash pastors slash overseers, all the same office we know from the New Testament. But now he hones in, if you will, on on the lead pastor, Timothy himself, and he talks directly to Timothy about his life. And he says, Timothy, here are the priorities for a gospel-shaped pastor like yourself. If you want to be the pastor God's called you to be, here are the priorities you must have. And we're going to look at the whole chapter. Here's the take-home truth for you. The gospel must set the priorities of a pastor's ministry. And if you're quick, what you just realized is what you, Chad, what you ought to say it is, that's the take-home truth for you. Yes, it is. Verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to look at this chapter kind of in reverse. The summary is in verse 16. Where Paul looks at Timothy, he spent a whole chapter talking to him, and he wraps it up, sums it up, concludes by saying to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, that is in keeping a close watch on yourself and your teaching, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The gospel, according to this verse and according to the larger text in in chapter 4, must set the priorities of a pastor's ministry. Now, you may be thinking... I know you are because I just kind of almost led you in that direction, didn't I? You're thinking, oh, good, man, a message just for Chad. Last week it was for elders. This one's just for Chad. Maybe the leadership, he's probably going to pull him in somehow, and you would be correct. But I can nap. It's definitely not for me. Again, everything Paul tells Timothy about his own life as a pastor, don't miss this. It applies to all of us, amen? Last week we looked at the at the reality of, of, of the uh, the, the character of, of, of elders, but the reality is these are men. Timothy was a pastor who was to be an example to the flock, who was to be an example to the church. We'll see that a little bit later on. If that's the case, then what do you do with an example? 
Do you just put it up on a shelf and look at it and think it looks nice? What's the whole point? Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Inasmuch as we follow Christ, those who put, God puts in leadership in the church, including the lead pastor, are to be examples. And inasmuch as we follow Christ, and only inasmuch as we follow Christ, are you to follow the example of those God has put in leadership over you. And furthermore, it's important that you as church members know God's gospel priorities for pastors. For you have a responsibility to this gospel gathering to ensure that your pastor and your leadership can focus on the ministry to which God has called us. Amen? So what does this look like practically? Paul sums it up in two exhortations there in verse 16. Number one... How, if we want to talk about God's priorities for gospel-shaped pastors, if we want to understand this reality that the gospel must set the priorities of a pastor's ministry, how does the gospel set the priorities of a pastor's ministry? Well, first of all, the exhortation comes in verse 16 to watch your gospel living. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself in the ESV. In the New Living Translation, it says, keep a close watch on how you live. In case there's any misunderstanding, he's not just talking about taking a look at yourself in the mirror every now and then. He's talking about looking at your life as a pastor. Timothy, watch your gospel living. Keep a close watch on how you live. Again, Piper says, the great pressure on us today, that is us as pastors, is to be productive managers. And then Piper makes this personal comment, few things frighten me more than the beginnings of barrenness that come from frenzied activity with little spiritual food and meditation. It ought to concern you when your pastor, when your leaders are barren because they're so busy in ministry. Did you hear what I said? Why? Because they need to first be about this business if they're to be gospel-shaped and therefore gospel-shaped examples for you and therefore gospel-empowered and gospel-motivated leaders for you. Then first and foremost, they must be watching their own gospel living. Paul David Tripp in his excellent book called Dangerous Calling says to us, addresses me as pastor, you are most loving, patient, kind, and gracious when you are aware that there is no truth that you could give to another that you don't desperately need yourself. How is the gospel of Jesus Christ forming and transforming the heart of this pastor and his local ministry culture? That's a question you ought to always be asking. That's a question you have the freedom to pursue. That's something you ought to be noticing about me and the life of our church here. There is no truth that I will ever communicate to you that I don't first need to hear and apply and have preached to my own heart first. He goes on in verse 12 to talk about this matter of watching our gospel living. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. And so in that day, the, the term used there for youth, they thought, they, thought, um, they thought differently, at least, than I feel, Joe. But they thought a young as, as up to about 40. So that means Timothy was somewhere south of 40. I'm not feeling so young at 47 
I, and 40 was a big deal. Like those of you who are getting close, let me just tell you, it's weird things. My wife's close. It's weird things happen at 40. Like stuff starts breaking down at 40. I don't know. It's just weird. But anyway, they still consider that a young man. And so he says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and impurity. And so Timothy is called, all pastors are called, all elders are called to be examples to the body, no matter their age. There's no age criteria given here. And, and, and Paul is saying, this is why you've got to watch your gospel living. This is why you must keep close watch on how you live. Now, will there ever be a pastor, including this one, who is a perfect example in all of these areas all the time? And never blows it at all. Man, I wish. But the answer is no. The only perfect one is Jesus himself. Amen? The only perfect leader you'll ever have. Whether it's the lead pastor or one of your, 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 your leadership team. Whatever it may be. We, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. We are all sinners saved by the grace of God. We will all fail you. This is to be our aim. This is to be our business of keeping watch over our own lives that we might be by the grace of God and the mercy of God and the power of the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We might be good examples in these areas of life for you. And we see Paul's focus is the practical gospel fruit in our relationships with others that comes from a close walk with Jesus But that takes consistency in what the Puritans called soul care for the pastor. And, by the way, for every believer who would look like Jesus in his or her life, for everyone who would walk in in Christ-likeness, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. We must, as he says back in verse 7... Beginning in verse 7, we must train ourselves, you see, for godliness. We must be about this, actively about this idea of watching our life closely. It's not just observe your life closely, it's give attention to your life closely. In fact, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And the word for train here is the word used of the gymnasium. It's a verb that sound, if, if I could say it in Greek the right way, it would, it, you would hear gymnazo or something like that in it. And the idea is exercise yourself, train, in the, as, just as in the physical sense, train spiritually for godliness. It was Richard Sibbs, that Puritan uh, of old in six, who died in 1635. He said this, it is not sleepy habits, but grace in exercise that preserveth preserveth us. How is it we live out the example Paul, God through Paul has called us to as leaders in the church, as pastors, as elders? How is it that you grow in Christ's likeness and follow the example of godly leaders and look like Jesus in speech and in faith and in purity and in love? How is it that that, that, that happens? Well, it's not by sleepy habits. What does that mean? It's not by, you know, just reading the Bible when you can when it fits your schedule, when you don't have anything else to do, when all the work around the house is done, when work settles down and slows, and it means spending time in prayer with discipline. 
It means working out your heart daily to get your spiritual muscles in shape toward God and in relation to Jesus. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. By the way, have you ever heard those around the church? Hello? Some of your translations say old wives' tales, and, and I'm just, I, I can't help it. I, I didn't put it there. But the idea is, you ever heard stuff that, I mean, just short story. Old women haven't got anything better to talk about. They make up stuff to talk about, and then all of a sudden that becomes news and front and center in the church. And all of a sudden something that's nothing, something that's unimportant in the church of Jesus Christ is made into some big deal. Paul tells Timothy, don't listen to that stuff. Keep the gospel front and center. Train yourself for godliness. And then in verses 8 and 9, he gives some gospel incentives for this training. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, there is a place for physical exercise. Right? Let me just encourage you as your pastor, keep moving. If it's not much, still keep moving some. Don't sit down. Uh, don't not move. Chad, Chad like, are you? Um, yeah, because it says it's of, it is of some value. You'll feel better. You'll be happier. You won't be as cranky. We'll like you better. The endorphins released through exercise will make you a more pleasant person, and we'll be glad you came to church every Sunday. Keep moving. For our bodily training is of some value. Listen to this. Here's the gospel incentive for spiritual training. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You can bank on it. You may waste some time in the gym. You, you can spend too much time at the gym because there's only so much good eternally that it will do. In fact, there's no eternal good, right? Just present. But at some point, you're wasting time if you make exercise your God, if you make the physical your God, if you just want to have that killer body, so whatever. I don't know. Somebody will notice that you're thinking you're an, a Greek god and you're not. You can waste time, but you can never waste time on spiritual training. It holds value for the present. It changes you today, and it has an effect in eternity, your eternity. Now, is this a work salvation? If you work hard enough, you'll get there? No. It's just a simple reality of, reality of, of, of if you're obedient to Jesus now, he, it, he'll reward you then. It doesn't earn heaven. If you let his grace have its way now, his grace will be glorified in you then. A gospel incentive for training. Why should we train ourselves, exercise ourselves, work hard to build spiritual muscle toward godliness? Because it holds promise both for the present life and for the life to come. But secondly, in verse 10, he gives us kind of the gospel drive in the training. What is it that's moving us? What is it that is within us already that energizes us in God's gym, if you will? Verse 10, for to this end, Paul says... He's telling Timothy to do it, and he says, but to this end, we, I included, we toil and strive. We work. Our workouts are hard. We put ourselves through the ropes. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 
man, what motivates me to work out my soul spiritually? What, what motivates me to, to, to train toward godliness in the Word of God and in prayer and in other spiritual disciplines? What moves me? It's the hope I have in the living God. I, every morning, wake up in the presence of the living Christ. He's alive. You don't wake up to a dead God. You don't wake up to some idol on the shelf if you know Jesus. You wake up to the creator and sustainer of all things. You wake up to the one who rose from the dead. He is alive, and it is with him that you have to do. And it changes everything. And I don't go to the gym because I'm scared of the risen one. I go to the gym because the one who rose again and lives today lives in me. And he's given me hope for today and forever, for eternity. And because of what he did for me on the cross and in the resurrection, I want the world to see and know him through me. I want to be his best ambassador. I want to be his best example. And this is not just for me as a pastor, this is for you, right? Let your light so shine upon men. That was a command to everybody in the body of Christ that they may see your good works and glorify the Father on the day of visitation. Paul says, man, because of the hope we've got, we labor, we toil, and we strive. I mean, we push the weight spiritually. We dig into the Word of God. We pour out our hearts to prayer. We discipline our schedules so that we have that time early in the morning or whenever it works for you to be with God, to hear from God through His Word, to speak to God and pour out to Him all of the heart, the burdens of your heart, and to ask Him to use you to fulfill both the great commandment, to live out the great commandment, and to fulfill the great commission in this world so that people will know and see Him because of the hope you have. Don't let the last part of this verse trip you up. It says, the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. It's not some kind of two-tiered salvation. God saves everybody, but He really saves those who believe. It's not, it's not what He's saying at all. It's, it's just a, another way of what He said already back in chapter 2 that we read earlier. He's the Savior of all men. Uh, there's only one Savior, no matter if you're high status in the world, low status, no matter if you're Jew, Greek, Slave or free, doesn't matter. He's the Savior of all. But, but salvation, so, so it's, it's, salvation's open to all. It's real and, and, and personal in the lives of those who believe the gospel, those who trust the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're to train ourselves for godliness. John Piper, again, the great threat to our prayer and our meditation on the Word of God as pastors, and so often as Christians, church people, is good ministry activity. The great threat to our prayer and meditation on the Word of God is good ministry activity. Sometimes we just need to say no. If we can't walk with Jesus and do all that we think has to be done in ministry. Because if we do that, there's, we're about this deep and this wide. The gospel calls pastors to train themselves for godliness, which means to focus on gospel-shaped living above all. The gospel must set the priorities of a pastor's ministry. Secondly, Paul tells Timothy, in order to have 
priorities of a gospel-shaped pastor, you must watch your gospel teaching. Second part of verse 16 says, keep a close watch on the teaching. And then he says of both his personal watchfulness and his doctrinal watchfulness, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a great preacher of yesteryear, said, if I only had three years to serve the Lord, I would spend two of them studying. Now, that may be an overstatement. That may be a little overboard, but not much. What's his point? Donald Gray Barnhouse understood the reality that when he stood to preach, he needed to be studied up in the Word of God. He needed to be full. He needed to understand clearly what it is from the very Word of the living God that he was communicating, that it might be clear, that it might be accurately spoken, that it might be right and true for the people to whom he spoke. As Piper puts it, what is at stake on Sunday morning is not merely the upbuilding of the church, but its eternal salvation. The preaching and teaching, even the reading of the Word of God is vital in the life of a pastor, in the life of any leader. Once again, it's vital in your life. So what does this watchfulness of the teaching, watching your gospel teaching, what does it involve? Well, first of all, in verses 1 through 6, we find out it involves clarifying the gospel and correcting false teaching. Listen to what he says. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, that is, that is the time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. Guess when that is? That's now, right? The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, in this case food and marriage, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. You know, most often, false teachers define spirituality by what you don't do, don't they? Here, the false teacher said, you, you can't really know God and marry. You can't really know God. That was sort of a Gnostic thing, by the way, and you just have to take... We don't have time to get into all that. But it's basically this philosophy that said all things physical, things like marital intimacy and physical pleasure, sex made by God, designed for the marriage bed, that, that, it, was, that it was just... It, it was, was not important. That's not the level where you related to God, and therefore all things physical, marriage just were to be avoided. But it also, also false teachers said, you can't really know God. You can't really be close to God if you eat certain things. And this was some of the Jewish influence, the Judaizing teaching, that, the, the, the doctrine that said, yes, Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. You can't just toss the law because, so it's Jesus and these rule keep, these, keeping these rules. False teachers define spirituality by what you don't, do. You see, your relationship with God as Father 
is not determined by what you don't do. But rather is about submitting your heart to Jesus who did and is by his spirit doing it all. Amen? It's the pastor's constant task to correct and clarify this kind of gospel truth. And how subtle it can come, how quickly and quietly and, and, and out of nowhere it can pop up that there's some admixture of, of, of grace and work, some twisting of the truth so that suddenly something that actually God created and wants us to enjoy is made to be bad and someone says you're supposed to avoid it. And so the pastor, the leadership of the church's job constantly is to correct and clarify the gospel. But the second element of watching your gospel teaching is to call all to train themselves in godliness. Right after the passage that we just went through about where Paul told Timothy, train yourself for godliness because it's, it's got promise both for now and later. Right after that, in verse 11, he says, command and teach these things. Timothy, that's not just for you. That, that train yourself for godliness, it's not just for you. Command and teach these things to everybody else. Call all to train themselves in godly. What's the ministry of the Word about? It's calling you to do what the Bible says, even as I try to do and exemplify and show you how to do what the Bible says. John MacArthur says we're not called to some chit-chat behind the microphone. We are to move in the power of sovereign authority out of the Word of the living God. I don't have any authority except for that of the Word of the living God. What you always need to ask of what I say behind this microphone that hangs on my ear is, is that what the Bible says? Is that what God says in His Word? Is He twisting that in any way? Or is He clearly telling me what God has told me in the book? But inasmuch as I'm telling you what the Bible says... John MacArthur says, we're not just having some little chit-chat. You need to understand it's the Word of the living God. I don't make it the Word of the living God. It is the Word of the living God being spoken through my weak lips and confused mind half the time. But it is the Word of God, and how should you, as the people of God, if it is the Word of God, receive it as the Word of the living God that it really is? Thirdly, Paul tells Timothy to concentrate on communicating the Word. Verses 13 and 15 talk about this, 13 through 15. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Just just reading it. That's why we incorporate that often here into our service. To exhortation, so not just reading it, but then taking what Scripture says and saying, okay, this, if this is true, then this is how it applies. This is, these are ways that you might want to think about living this out or letting this truth affect your behavior. To teaching. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. You see, the pastor ought to always either be preaching or preparing to preach or teach or exhort or read the Word of God. Paul says, my life is to swim in the Scripture. Spurgeon would have said, it ought to be for every Christian, he would have said, and and he did say, every Christian ought ought to bleed bibline. 
If you poke them, they ought to bleed Bible. When circumstances prod you, what ought to come out? The Word of God. Why? Because that's how dependent on it we are. There's a play on words here between verses 14 and 15 in the Greek. In verse 14, it says, don't neglect the gift. In verse 15, it says, practice these things. If you, if you, if you catch the play on words and, and kind of morph it over into the English idiom, it, it would be something like this. Don't be careless about your gift, your gift of teaching, your gift of preaching. Don't be careless about your gift, but be careful about your calling. Don't be careless, be careful. Don't be lackadaisical with the gift God's given you. Be diligent with the gift God's given you. Use it. John MacArthur's dad used to say, I, kind of, I never had heard this until I was studying for this message. I like it. A preacher ought to be able to preach, pray, or die within a minute. A Christian ought to be able to share the gospel, pray, or die within a minute. I'm not going to do it. So don't fear, though I probably should. But if I were to point at one of you right now and say, give me the gospel in 30 seconds, could you stand up and give it? If the answer is no, then that's your homework assignment. You need to go home and learn how to do that today. Right? Because you might be in that situation where someone needs to know Jesus and you are the ambassador God puts in that moment. Can you communicate the gospel in 30 seconds to them? I hope you have three hours. I hope you don't have to do it in 30 seconds. But could you? Are you walking in step with Jesus so that you're sensitive to that person that, that comes to you, that's talking to you at work, and you can just sense they need you to pray for them? And the third thing is, I just, I just want to know, I, I, we, we, you need to be real about this. Are you okay with dying in, the, in 60 seconds from now? And I'm serious. Is heaven that real to you? Do you is, is God's grace that true to your heart? That you know that the best place you could be, we're just talking hope. Farrell Burrell died here a few weeks ago and Hope, his daughter-in-law, is with us this morning for the first time since he passed away and we were talking beforehand. Farrell is home. We grieve when our loved ones die. They are home like they've never been. What would my death be 60, if it was 60 seconds from now? It would be the greatest release of my life. If it's, if, let me tell you something. If anything I've ever preached is true, then I ought to be ready to die in a minute. Now, when I stop and think about my family, some of you as my friends, sure, there's, we're human. Part of us don't want to go, obviously. But His grace, is Jesus real enough to you that you're ready for that? A pastor will never be perfect, nor should he be expected to. Please, please. A pastor needs grace and forgiveness as much, if not more, at times than the rest of the church. But verse 15 says the church ought to be able to see that a pastor is growing. And when a pastor is allowed to immerse himself in watching his own life and watching his doctrine closely, then he 
will be nourished and be able to grow. I'm thankful that from the first conversations I had, Tim, with the pastor search committee of East LJ Baptist Church in the summer, five, five summers ago now, of 2013, it was made clear that your leadership wanted me to be focused on the study and preaching and teaching of the Word of God in prayer. And that is not usual or common. And for that, I thank God. And in that, in that, I knew that God was at work and something was different. And so you ought to be thankful for godly leadership that had that as a priority and said, there's going to be times when you've got to do other things as a pastor, but what we want you to do mainly is what the Scriptures say in the, in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. What the apostles said in Acts 6, we want you to give yourself to the Word of God in prayer. The gospel, not church members, not community needs, the gospel must set the priorities of a pastor's ministry. Verse 16 says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What is the gospel? We read it earlier, 1 Timothy 2, 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Here's the message that the world needs to know, that God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. They need to know that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, a payment, a sacrifice of atonement for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And that message is to shape both my life and my ministry. That message is to shape your life and our ministry together. Paul David Tripp, again in his excellent book, the, uh, A Dangerous Calling, said this of his, of his heart for his seminary students, those young men who were studying for the ministry he said, I wanted them to feel the weight of being called to make an invisible Christ visible in the lives of people who desperately need to see Him and remember His grace. Because they loved Jesus and wanted to be transformed and be His tool of transformation. That's the weight that you feel as a pastor. It's the way you should feel as a pastor, as an elder, as a deacon. That's the way every believer should feel in, the, in a world where we're called to be ambassadors for Christ. Amen? The weight that the world needs to in us see an invisible Christ made visible. Am I making Him visible before you? Are you making Him visible to those around you? Are we watching our lives, our gospel living carefully? Are we watching our gospel doctrine, our gospel teaching carefully? Because you see, one leads to the other. It's a circle. The gospel must set the priorities of a pastor's ministry. And it is these priorities we've seen here that are the priorities of a gospel-shaped pastor. Let's pray together.